So thank you for her life and her example. We pray that you will just anoint her, Father God, and speak your words. We pray that she will be your vessel, Father God, that she will be your mouthpiece. She will be your eyes. She will be your ears, Father God. Just Holy Spirit, fall on us today, Father God. Just break down barriers, Father God. Just come and visit us and just surround us with your perfect joy, your peace and love, Father God. Whatever our situation, whatever we're going through, Father God, we know that you are here and that you love us, that you care for us so infinitely, Father God. So just bring Natalie before you, God. Just use her mightily, Father God. We know that she's anointed and appointed to be here today to give us a message. So just bless her, Father God. Bless her words and just make us receptive to what you, what you have to say through her. We give you thanks in Jesus' name. Amen. Give me two minutes to put everything down here. <laughs> okay, good afternoon, ladies. Thank you so much for having me here. I just wanted to honor the wonderful woman who put this together because I think we as women appreciate coming into a space that's beautiful, where there's food. <laughs> where there's tea and coffee being served to you. <laughs> We're usually the ones running around doing that for everybody in our homes, and it's just lovely to be here today, spoiled in the presence of God and just with one another. So we just want to thank you, each and every one of you women who have been involved in putting this afternoon together. Thank you so much. Let's just give them a round of applause. Thank you. Thank you. Um, and I just also wanted to, to say thank you for inviting me here today. Um, I've brought some of my, my friends and, and um, my, my cheerleaders <laughs> with me from our church this, this afternoon. Um, so I just want to say thanks, ladies, for joining me. And just honor um, these ladies because they are women who carry me in my life and are there for me in, in my life, and I just value each and every one of them so much. Um, and thank you to, to Pastor Melissa and her husband, Pastor Fabian, who are our pastors and, and most importantly, our friends. And um, I just want to honor them um, because it's very important to, to do that when you are speaking at a different place to just put honor on the people who have invited you and also the place from where you sent. So I just want to do that this morning. Um, yeah, sure, this, this afternoon. This, this afternoon, God has, um, for some time now, been stirring this word in my heart. And um, ever since I, I um, spoke to, I spoke to Shelly on the phone, and I met her here today for the first time. <laughs> but she made the ask, and then um, I met with Shelly and Renee. And just as Shirley said, we really connected hearts um, immediately, and it was really very special um, to meet with these ladies. And then they told me about the topic of, of this afternoon. And, you know, yes, I have a certain context that I come out of, but that wouldn't generally mean that something about being a change agent in the nation would just automatically resonate with me. But I can say really without a doubt that it does. 
um, because it's something that God has been laying on my heart for a while now, and um, I'll get into it a little bit more, but I feel this afternoon is a very significant afternoon, and um, there's been a lot of prayer and um, a lot of, of time that has been spent preparing for this afternoon, not just for what you've been eating and what you see around you, but um, even more so for the spiritual atmosphere and the message that, that um, is going to be brought here this afternoon. And I just feel such a significance about that. So I want to thank you for, for being part of that, because not only do I feel that um, you are journeying yourselves, each of you individually, but I, felt that, I feel that this afternoon is a very significant part of my journey and my message and my voice in this nation. So I just want to bless the Lord for that, um, that he's brought us all together in this room for such a time as this. Um, so I just want to introduce myself. Um, <laughs> my name is Natalie. I have a, uh, a surname that sounds familiar to a lot of you. <laughs> my, my, my husband, um, Musi Maimani, is the leader of the opposition in South Africa. He leads the DA, the largest opposition party in South Africa. Um, and that's a picture of our kids and, and us together. Um, I'd like to ask you not to post that on social media. <laughs> if you Googled our children, you'll find pictures that don't look like that because we've been quite deliberate in, not keeping, in keeping them out of the public eye for the moment. We'll see what God has to say as we go along. But um, our daughter, Kala Letso, is um, six years old. And our son, Daniel, has just turned five in October. And um, oh, they're just awesome. They, are, they keep me very busy. And they were both sick this week, the whole week. <laughs> While I was prepping for today, they were at home. <laughs> of course. <laughs> and um, um, I can't say that I won the grace test this week, guys. I can't say that. I, I do feel I'd had some repenting to do. Um, in preparation for <laughs> this afternoon. <laughs> but they are wonderful. They are the joys of my life, and I love them very much. Each of our children has got a um, Setswana name and then also an English name. Our daughter's name, Kala Letso, means the glory of God. Uh, uh, and her English name is Kayla Faith, and, um, which, which means exalted and obviously faith. And um, Daniel, Daniel means God is my judge. And his um, Setswana name is Khosi, which is basically the Setswana version of Nkosi. So that means king. And boy, he came out with a natural confidence. I don't know where it came from. <laughs> but I suppose you get, you get what you ask for, hey? <laughs> um, I come from a, quite a middle-class family. We lived um, on the West Rand in Johannesburg for pretty much my whole life. I grew up in about a 10-kilometer radius. Um, and uh, we, we, my husband and I met when uh, we were both at church. The churches that we went to merged, and he was the youth pastor at his church, and I was part of the youth at mine, and I was probably about 15. Um, we, neither of us remember the first moment we met. There were no fireworks. There were no chemistry and 
I don't know, stars in the sky. <laughs> um, we just became very close friends and um, we were part of one another's lives for five years and then over, one, uh, over lunch one day, something in my heart just changed and, um, and I thought, yeah. <laughs> this best friend of mine, he is not so bad. <laughs> Um, we got married in 2005, and so this year in August we celebrated 12 years together, and we have had two kids and some very big changes in life, and here we are. So we've journeyed quite a, a journey together. Um, we have known each other longer than we haven't known each other, um, and I'm just blessed that, that this is the man in my life. Um, but to, today, I just want to say that you know who I am, you know who my husband is, and you know the context that I come from, but today, as Gertrude actually put it so beautifully, this is not about my husband and the party he runs. This is not about the, the family that I come from. Today is a kingdom day. And I really, it doesn't matter who you vote for. You could vote for whoever you, your heart leads you to vote for. That is not why I'm here today, so you can just relax. I'm not going to have a registration table afterwards. <laughs> um, we're just here to, to talk kingdom. And I feel a very significant kingdom message for you this afternoon. Um, so... I'm going to ask you to, to open your Bibles or your apps to um, the book of Nehemiah. Um, and I've, I've given it the title, The Nehemiah Call, Build and Defend. That is a picture of the, the wall of Jerusalem. And the whole book in Nehemiah talks about the rebuilding of the wall of Jerusalem. Now, in January of this year, we were really very pr privileged to be able to visit Israel. And um, um, my husband and I were able to, to go to Jerusalem. We were able to see, um, to see the, the holy city for ourselves. Um, we went up onto T Temple Mount as the Jewish people call it, and we stood at the Wailing Wall, and so I have been to this, this wall, um, and it's, it's quite an incredible thing because it, en it engulfs a whole city, um, which has obviously then spread as it's grown larger outside of the, that, that wall around that city, but it helped me to imagine what things would have been like when Nehemiah had arrived in Jerusalem and seen the brokenness that was in that city at the time. And I want you to think about the fact that back when Nehemiah was alive, which we think is around 400 BC, um, he lived in a time where a city was a very significant place. A city was pretty much the same as what a state would be in our times now. It would be, it would be like a province in itself. Um, it was a place where everything happened. The commerce of, this, of the, the nation would happen in that city. 
um, the, the king would dwell in that city. Everything that came together about that nation culminated in the city. Um, and keep that in mind as we go through um, Nehemiah. So Nehemiah 1 verse 1 to 3 says, The words or story of Nehemiah, son of Hakaliah, now in the month of Cheslev in the 20th century of the Persian king, as I was in the castle of Shushan, Hanani, one of my kinsmen, kinsmen, came with certain men from Judah, and I asked them about the surviving Jews who had escaped exile and about Jerusalem. You'll notice that when we first meet Nehemiah, he's not in Jerusalem. And that is because Jerusalem is in ruin. And the people of Jerusalem, God's people, have been scattered. They've been sold into slavery. They have been made to be servants for other nations. They no longer dwell in Jerusalem. And Nehemiah is one of those people. He serves in the king of Persia's gates. He is actually a cupbearer in the courts of the king of Persia. So he's got a significant position within that um, particular um, kingdom, but he's not home, okay? And they said to me, the remnant there in the province who escaped exile are in great trouble and reproach. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its fortified gates are destroyed by fire. So there are a few people that are living within Jerusalem but they are completely vulnerable. They don't have, I mean, I just want you to imagine being in your home and the windows have been broken out of your house and you're living in this home with no windows, where doors are broken, where your garden wall has been broken down, but you still remain in that home. And I want you to feel, <laughs> I think as women, we know that feeling of, oh, I don't want to be here, that's not safe. <laughs> that's, that's, the people that are living there, that's what they're experiencing as they live in that place. And what we see the experience Nehemiah goes through is one of pain. His immediate response is one of pain. If you just turn to Nehemiah 1 verse 4. When I heard this, I sat down and wept, and I mourned for days and fasted and prayed constantly before the God of heaven. The call of Nehemiah started with pain. He felt a desperate, desperate sense of pain for the nation which he saw broken in front of him. I, I, I hope you are starting to see the parallels, <laughs> okay? He was desperate. For this nation. He was so desperate that he actually went into a time of mourning, okay? He went into a time of mourning for days, and he fasted and prayed. He could not eat because he was so upset about what was going on in his nation. But he was also a man that we find positioned. In Nehemiah 1 verse 11, we see that he says, Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and the prayer of your servants who delight to revere and fear your name. And prosper, I pray you, your servant, this day, and grant him mercy in the sight of this man, for I was cupbearer to the king. So he decides he's going to approach the 
the king. He's positioned in the courts of the king of Persia, who was an incredibly wealthy, incredibly resourced and powerful man. And in Nehemiah 2, verse 3 to 8, we see that what happens is, and I'm sure you've heard this before, Nehemiah is in the courts of the king, and he is so desperate for his nation that he can no longer function as this cupbearer without everything that he feels inside of him being displayed on his face. And the king actually asks him, what is wrong with you? What's going on? Okay, he has served the king with such excellence that when something has been touched in his heart about his nation, immediately the king notices there's something different about this guy. What is going on? And I said to the king, let the king live forever. Why should I not be sad-faced when the city, the place of my fathers, lies waste and its fortified gates are consumed by fire? So the king said to me, well, what are you asking for? What do you want? How can I make this better? How can I help you? So I prayed to the God of heaven, and I said to him, if it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in your sight, I ask that you will send me to Judah, to the city of my fathers, that I may rebuild it. The king, beside whom the queen was sitting, asked me, how long will your journey take, and when will you return? So it pleased him to send me, and I set a time. And also I said to the king, if it pleases the king, let letters be given me for the governors beyond the Euphrates River so that they might let me pass through to Judah. And a letter to Asaph, keeper of the king's forest or park, that he may give me timber to make the beams for the gates of the fortress of the temple and for the city wall and for the house that I shall occupy. And the king granted what I asked, for the good hand of my God was upon me. So he approaches the king. He makes an ask of the king. And because of the way that God has positioned him in the king's court, the king's resources now become available to Nehemiah to rebuild that which has been placed on his heart, that which is burning within him. And not only that, but he also gets a letter from the king that gives him safe passage through the areas all the way to the place that he's going to. So he not only has the resources of the king, but he carries the favor of the king in foreign lands to foreign peoples. He's actually allowed safe passage through on his journey so that no one may touch him. And he's given a whole lot of resources to be able to go and do what it is that he wants to do. And he has a plan. Then I said to them, you see the bad situation we are in. This is Nehemiah 2, verse 17 to 18. How Jerusalem lies in ruins, and its gates are burned with fire. Come, let us build up the wall of Jerusalem, that we may lo no longer be a disgrace. Just want you to remember that disgrace. Then I told them of the hand of my God, which is upon me for good. So he says, listen, I went to the king. I spoke to him. The reason I'm here is because he sent me. The reason you see this pile of wood for us to build with is because he gave it to us. Okay, so he testifies of what God has done so up to this point. And then he says, and I told them of the words that the king had spoken to me. And they said, 
let us rise up and build. So they strengthened their hands for the good work. So we find a man in pain, but we see that in his situation, he's also positioned. We see that he has a plan. And if you go to Nehemiah 4, verse 4, and 4, verse 9, you'll see that continuously throughout the book of Nehemiah, he calls on God. It is all based on the foundation of prayer. And he has this work in his heart that he cannot ignore based on the foundation of prayer. He cries out to God, God, give me favor. God, give me favor in the sight of the king. God, give me safe passage. God, and he continues to pray and cry out as he goes along in every aspect of his journey. He is founded on prayer. So he gets to Jerusalem and he sees a city in ruins. Now, this is a photograph that I took um, of the, there's actually a model of the city of Jerusalem, the way it would have been in biblical times, just close to um, one of the, the areas of the city wall. And it's not completely accurate, but they've decided to leave it like that because it's a work of art in itself. Um, if you kind of squint your eyes, you can see that on the other side of the photograph, there are people walking along a walkway right at the top there. They've got some of them little red shirts on and what have you. And there's a door right at the back as well. So just to give you an idea of how large this model is. And again, we look here right in the front at the Temple Mount. And the, again, the way that the Jewish people would have seen it, because as you can see, it doesn't have the mosque on the top. It's got the temple on the top. And we see right around the whole of Jerusalem this wall, okay? And I put that there to give you an idea of what kind of a task Nehemiah had before him. Because the miracle of it is that they complete the entire wall in 52 days. A wall that is in ruins is completed in 52 days with a group of people who are basically odd bits of pieces of people of nation that have come from here and there and some of them have been slaves and some of them are rich and some of them are poor and, so, and, and they band together. I mean, I think it would take longer than 52 days to complete the model wall <laughs> around, around there. So when Nehemiah looks at his city, he sees a city in ruins. So he, he says in Nehemiah 4, verse 13 to 18, I set armed men behind the wall in places where it was least protected. I even thus used the people as families with their swords, spears, and bows. Now remember, they're building, but they're armed, okay? I looked them over and rose up and said to the nobles and officials and the other people, do not be afraid of the enemy. Earnestly remember the Lord and imprint him on your minds, great and terrible, and take from him courage to fight for your brothers, for your sons, for your daughters, your wives, and your homes. 
And when our enemies heard that their plot was known to us and that God had frustrated their purpose, we all returned to the wall, everyone to his work. And from that time forth, half of my servants worked at the task and the other half held spears, shields, bows and coats of mail. And the leaders stood behind all the house of Judah. Those who built the wall and those who bore burdens loaded themselves so that everyone worked with one hand and held a weapon with the other. And every builder had his sword girded by his side, and so he worked. And he, he who sounded the trumpet was at my side. The person who sounded the trumpet was the person who was signaling there's an attack on that certain part of the wall. And then everyone would come to that particular part of the wall and gather together to fight against the attack. So there's a simultaneous building and defending of the wall of Jerusalem. Because... There is something happening as they build this wall that causes the peoples around Jerusalem to take note. Why? What's so concerning about the idea of the Jerusalem wall being rebuilt? What is what is so upsetting to the peoples around Jerusalem that they would feel the need to attack people who are laborers busy building a wall? We'll get there. <laughs> so we see a man with a pain in his heart. We see a man with a plan. We see a man who is, he's got a, a a great work ahead of him and he is positioned and he goes from that place of position with purpose. And the purpose is the reason why they have to defend. So Nehemiah 2 verse 18 says, Then I told them of the hand of my God which was upon me for good. And this is where he says, Let's rise up and build. And they strengthened their hands for the good work. In Nehemiah 2 verse 19, the very next verse, it says, But when Sanballat, the Horonite, and Tobiah, the servant, the Ammonite, and Geshem, the Arab, heard of it, they laughed as to scorn and despise us. What is this thing you are doing? Will you rebel against the king? I answered them, The God of heaven will prosper us. Therefore, we his servants will arise and build. But you have no portion or right or memorial in Jerusalem. He has purpose. God told me to do this, and so I don't care what you think. God told me to do this, and this has nothing to do with you. Move along. His purpose helps him to stand up against criticism. So, they don't give up, Nehemiah 6, verse 2 to 6. Sanballat and Geshem sent to me, saying, Come, let us meet together in one of the villages in the plain of Ono. But they intended to do me harm. These are the same men, this, these enemies of the work that God is doing. And I sent messages to them to say, sorry, messengers to them saying, I am doing a great work and I cannot come down. Why should the work stop while I leave to come down to you? They sent me four times this way, and I answered them four times as before. 
Then Sanballat sent his servant to me again the fifth time with an open letter. In it was written, sorry, that made me laugh because I just thought, you know, open letters have been around for quite a long time. (laughs) In it was written, it is reported among the neighboring nations, and Gashmu says it, that you and the Jews plan to rebel, so there are rumors about you, therefore you are building the wall that you may be their king according to the report. This is what we've heard, okay? So they start with flattery. The distraction from his purpose starts with flattery. We see what a good job you're doing here. Why don't you just come and have a little meeting with us? No, four times. Then they move on to a smear campaign. Rumors. So what we've heard is, word on the street. You are planning a coup and you want to be king. Still, he doesn't come down from the wall. He doesn't take time to say, well, my good name is at stake here. Best I go and do something about it and meet with them so that he can put them right about his reputation. He doesn't care. (laughs) He doesn't care what they think because God has given him a purpose to rebuild that wall. And that is what he is going to do. Come hell or high water, he is rebuilding that wall. He will not listen to flattery. He's not going to listen to people try to smear his name because he knows it's not about him. He has stepped out of this picture and he has laid down his life to do the work that God has called him to do, to rebuild the wall of Jerusalem. And then they move on because flattery didn't work and a smear campaign didn't work. So they have to move on to fear. So Nehemiah 6 verse 10 says, I went to the house of Shemaiah, the son of of Delea, I always think you really should practice these things, but I just read past them. (laughs) He was shut up and he said, let us meet together in the house of God within the temple and let us shut the doors of the temple for they are coming to kill you. At night, they're coming to kill you. He says, let's let's go and hide in the church because they're coming to kill you. It's even laced in manipulation. It's even seen to be a safe space. Come, come, let's go to the safe space. Let's go to the house of God so we can hide away because they're coming to kill you. Fear does not touch him. He is not moved by fear. He is not moved by flattery. He's not moved by a smear campaign. He is not moved. Why isn't he moved? Because Nehemiah has skin in the game. I put up this photograph. That's my arm and my kids' arms. My little daughter's dainty wrist and my son's massive hand. (laughs) He already, for the last year or so, has been a kilo heavier than her, even though she's almost two years older than him. And my wedding rings fit on his wedding finger. (laughs) Partly because I've got really ridiculously tiny fingers, but also because he's just got these wide, big hands. But I put the picture of our skin together 
because that's my skin in the game. That's my purpose. The reason why the wall has to go up is because of those two kids. I've got skin in the game. I'm not going anywhere else. I think that for South Africa by now, you either can't leave or you've decided to stay. And full disclosure, my father is Welsh, so I've got a British passport. <laughs> and I'm still here. When I visit England, when I arrived on, on English soil for the first time, the, security, the man at security said, welcome home. And I just <laughs> smiled. <laughs> it was my first ever visit. <laughs> I've got skin in the game. I can't be distracted from my purpose. I have to build that wall. Because if I don't build that wall, where are they going to go? What are they going to do? They'll be vulnerable. They are children. They don't have their own autonomy. They don't have their own authority. That's my skin in the game. So I've made a covenant in my heart. Just like in Nehemiah 4 verse 22. At the same time also I said to the people, let everyone with his servant lodge within Jerusalem that at night they may be a guard to us and a laborer during the day. They didn't go home while they were working on the wall. They lived in those walls, those vulnerable walls, while they rebuilt them. They lived there. Them and their families, their children, stayed overnight in a city without walls because they had skin in the game. They had made a covenant in their hearts that they were rebuilding that wall. They didn't build the wall and then say, bye, I'm off to my house with the security. They stayed over with their wives, with their children. They stayed over with their inheritance. In, in Hebrew culture, your family is your inheritance. I think we can identify with that. Our family is our inheritance. They lived in a vulnerable city with their vulnerable families because they had covenanted that that wall was going up. So, he had purpose. He knew his why. And it's very, very important to know our why. The why, your defense, speaks to your heart. Why did he feel that pain in the first place? What is it that grabbed Nehemiah about the task? Why the pain in the first place? His fiery heart set others alight. He said to the, the men and women gathered around him, come, let us build. And he testified about what had happened with the king. And he communicated the why, why I feel this way. Why are we doing this? There's a young guy at our church, and he's an incredible mentor. 
He's just become a father very recently, but he's been fathering for a long time. And one of the things that he does when he mentors the young men around him is he doesn't give them a task and just say, this is what you are doing. He tells them why. He explains the why once, and he never has to explain the what again. Because they catch the heart. They catch his why. They catch his purpose. They understand, oh, so the reason why we make sure that the stage is cleaned is so that people are not distracted by etc., etc., etc. Oh, the reason why we have to make sure that the toilets are cleaned is because, so it's not a task that they're given. It's a reason why. It's not clean the toilets. It's this is why. Because in the house of God, because when we present the house of God to people, because we want to have excellence, because we want to host people, because we want people to feel loved and honored, Nehemiah knows the why, so he communicates the why to those around him. His purpose stands in the face of criticism. When those enemies of Jerusalem come against him and they ask, what are you doing? One of them even says, oh, look at this wall. Even if a fox had to stand on it, it would come crumbling down. He doesn't listen. He knows his why. He knows why he's doing it. And he's not moved by fear. He's not distracted by a smear campaign. He's not distracted by flattery because he knows his why. Ken Costa wrote a book called Know Your Why. And if you're struggling with your why, maybe give it a look. We've got to know why we're doing what we're doing. We've got to know why we feel the pain that we do. Because if we don't understand our why, the rest just has no sustainability. You, what we see happening in Nehemiah is a task fulfilled to the very end. An instruction given by God that is completed and brought to its fullness. And if we don't know our why, we won't be able to experience that. Because what if you pass on? What if something happens and you can no longer continue the task? If Nehemiah was taken out of the situation, they would have built that wall because they knew why they were doing it. They had to know their why. If you can just put the next slide up for me. So purpose helps us stand up to helps us stand up and take our place of defense. It was their purpose that caused them to know why they were defending the wall and building it at the same time. They knew that this had to be completed, and so they carried a tool in one hand and a sword in another. Imagine trying to explain that to a laborer who's already carrying bricks and mortar and wood and, oh, also, by the way, don't forget your sword. Uh, I'm building but if, because they knew why, they knew, right, yes, sir, I've got the sword as well. Right, off we go. Where are the gaps in the wall? Let's stand together. Let's make sure that, oh, listen out for the trumpet. Okay, let's all go. Let's make sure that we defend on that side. There's 
there's a, a union, a, a unity that comes from knowing the why. In this building, we see Nehemiah 5. And Nehemiah 5 is where the story of <laughs> the building of the wall gets a little uncomfortable. Because in Nehemiah 5, we see, as one biblical scholar called it, the reform of the oppressor and the relief of the oppressed. And the oppressor is not actually who we think it could be. But Nehemiah 5 starts with a cry from the poor. A cry from the poor, who are actually God's people, Jewish people, who have been brought back into the city. And it's an incredible thing, because some of those people had to be bought. They had to be bought from their slave masters by the wealthy Jews so that they could be brought back to Jerusalem. Now imagine being a slave for some wealthy person and being bought by your brethren, by your brothers. And off you go and you think, I've been rescued out of slavery. And the next thing you arrive in Jerusalem and it's a mess. And then not only that, but what happens in the time that Nehemiah is with the people, is that those very same brothers who bought their brethren out of slavery continue to treat them as slaves. The wealthy and noble Jews continue to treat those other Jewish people who have been brought from slavery as slaves. And so Nehemiah 5 starts with a cry from the oppressed, and it grabs Nehemiah. He is so busy, he's working, he's building a wall, but this cry of the poor grabs his heart. It grabs his attention. The cry of the poor moves the heart of God. In Isaiah 58, verse 6 to 7, that's the scripture that says, the fast that I require is righteousness and justice. God does not require of us these major religious ceremonies and things that display our feeling for him or our... He doesn't want a long, lengthy prayer. He wants us to have a right-standing relationship with him and to execute justice where we stand to execute justice in our communities, in our families, in our churches. The oppressed are a thermometer in a nation. Whenever you look at a nation and you look at the poor, you can see how that nation is doing. It's just the same as the children in a family. When things between my husband and I are at loggerheads, the kids misbehave. And why do they do that? because they're the thermometer in the home. When dad has been traveling for a while and you're really at the end of your tether and you feel a little bit highly strung because you've been mommy and daddy and cook and cleaner and taxi driver, that's when the kids misbehave. Why? Because they're picking it up from you. You are this tension that's building and they are vulnerable. They are at your disposal. They, they can't do much except that you do it for them. 
And the poor in a nation are like that. Not because they are like children. Hear me out. Not because they are like children, but because they are vulnerable. Because they deal with whatever it is that the leadership of a nation has executed in that nation. The wealthy have always got a way around, a way out, a way to navigate. They've got the means and the resources to do that. The poor have nothing. They are stuck. They are vulnerable to the policies that the king has put in place. They are the thermometer in a nation. What are, what are the poor people in our nation saying about our nation right now? Their treatment brings blessing or judgment on a nation. The scripture is full of promises of God saying that he will bless those who bless the poor and the widows and the orphans because he's their defender. So if you mess with the vulnerable in your society, you mess with God. You can bring a curse upon your community or your nation in the way that you treat the vulnerable in your community. The oppressor needed to have a change of heart and mind. Now understand, when we talk about an oppressor, it sounds, it's a very weighty word. It's a terrible word. Someone who has oppressed somebody makes you think of a, someone who is an abuser. But here, it was actually the brothers and sisters of the people of Israel. It was the privileged. It was the people who had means and resources. They became the oppressor in this situation because of a mindset and a heart attitude that said, well, you were sold into slavery, therefore you are a slave. So even though we have brought you back, in my mind, you are still less than me. It was a mind and a heart attitude that had to change. They had to move just from doing what was fair to doing what was just. They had to move from doing what was fair to doing what was just. There's a difference. There is a difference between something being fair and something being just. Nehemiah led by example himself. He was a governor under the house of Persia. He was allotted a whole lot of land and resources because of that. And he decided not to take that which he was entitled to in order that others be included. Because they were his brothers. Because he could look at someone next to him and say, I have a right to all of this. But I am passing it on to you so that you and I can both live here. So he, for, he forwent that which was entitled to him. There's this image I want you to see, which gets put up in a number of different... We speak about equality in South Africa because we are a society of equality. 
We have finally, since 1994, become a society that has equal rights for everybody. Equal race rights before the law. Equal rights for everybody. Everybody is equal. <laughs> but the problem is, right there in that picture, it's great that they've all got the same size box. But the problem is they're not all the same size. <laughs> Big guy on the left has a height privilege. And he can see over the fence anyway. Little guy on the right-hand side has got my genes. <laughs> He's a tiny little thing. He can't see over the fence, even if he's got the same size box. We have to move away from this idea of equality, what is fair, to what is just, to equity. So yes, you have the right to five slices of this pizza, but so-and-so hasn't eaten for three days. Do you still want your five slices? You have a right to them. You can choose. Yes, it's fair. It is absolutely fair for you to have them. But is it just? Now, that's the move that the oppressors had to make. The privileged people in the land of Israel had to make this move from going, okay, I have to move from what I'm entitled to to a place of justice in my nation to being a vessel of justice in my nation. Now, we as the church, as the body of Christ, have an even higher calling. We have the Nehemiah calling on our lives. It is a higher calling that says, even greater than equality, even greater than equity, we have to restore dignity. We have to restore the dignity of our people. And I want to remind you, when we read right in the beginning, when Nehemiah comes to see Jerusalem, he says, let us rebuild the wall so that we may no longer be in disgrace. Because a city without a wall is disgraced. A city without a wall has no identity. A city without a wall is vulnerable and weak and at the mercy of whoever is stronger at the time. A city without a wall is not a nation. A city without a wall has no unity. It doesn't have a safe place. It is not a home. A city without a wall brings disgrace. And the Nehemiah call to the church in South Africa at this point in time is to bring back dignity to our nation, to rebuild the wall. To rebuild the wall so that we can restore our land's dignity. My husband and I were watching that documentary, Mandela, where he is interviewed about his life, and he just talks about his life. And I was so struck by him visiting his old high school in the rural areas of Eastern Cape, he arrives. And you would think that because this was Madiba's high school, that it's now being modernized and there's plenty of money being pumped into it and 
One would expect that kind of thing to have happened, but it hasn't. It is still pretty much a rural school in one of the areas in South Africa where he arrives and the hall is packed with students. It's basically a room. And I thought to myself, his presence in that rural, run-down school brought dignity to those people. Just the mere fact that he arrived, when those young people walked out of there, they would stand a little straighter. They would puff out their chests a little. They would say to their friends, do you know who was at our school today? Madiba was at our school. Do you know why? Because Madiba went to our school. The president of this country came from my school. He gave them dignity just by presencing himself. We are the Nehemiah to our land. Just by presencing ourselves in our communities, just by opening the eyes of those around us to see the holes in the wall, just by picking up the tools and the weapons to build and defend our nation, we will be restoring dignity to our land, to our people. If you're waiting for some political figure to do that for this country, you are going to wait a long time. Because this call didn't come to the political people in the land. This came to Nehemiah. It came to a man of God. It came to a man of God who wasn't even living in the place he was supposed to restore. He'd been exiled because of the situation that his people were in. And God moved him, moved on his heart to go and restore dignity, to build a wall, to restore the nation. What? What is it? What is it for you? How are you going to answer the Nehemiah call? What is it? What's your part of the wall? Bill Hybels talks about a holy discontent. If you can just go back one, sorry. What is it that irritates you about our country? What is it that actually makes you angry? Or what is it that causes you pain? Because therein probably lies your what. How the, the, the place you suppose, the what you're supposed to be doing to restore dignity to our land is probably in your discontent. Because there's something you see that irritates you that I don't see. There's something in you that wants to fix that, to wants, that wants to see it working properly. In fact, you can see how that can be working properly. Maybe God is actually calling you to be a ward counselor because you see all the street lights that are, and the potholes and the, actually, I'm going to speak to Natalie Maimani after this thing because you know what? The, the robots in my road haven't worked because maybe... You should be the ward counselor in your ward. Because we sure, we sure need godly ward counsellors. Or maybe you need to be the prayer support to the ward counsellor in your ward. Maybe you need to approach that person and ask them, what is it that you struggle with in this area? 
I come to you with my pothole request, but you've got five other pages of things that you need to sort out. What is it that you need from me? How can I help? How can I serve you to restore our land's dignity? The where, the seven gateways of society, something is going to tick for you in education. Maybe it's in politics. Maybe it's in sports and recreation. Maybe it's in media. Go and have a look at those seven gateways of society. You know that the wall around Jerusalem has various gateways for various purposes. There were different people building at different gateways to create and to facilitate the purpose of that gateway. What is it for you? Is it in education? Is it in health? Your pastor right here, that's definitely, I've, I've had one, one and a half conversations with her and I know that that's what burns on her heart. If, you, if you're not sure, I want to suggest that you have a look at this book, Another Country by Charlene Swartz. She's a South African lady. She asks some hard questions in this book, so you better be ready for that. And I've challenged a friend of mine for her group, her, her life group, to work through it. And they're doing that together as a life group, asking some hard questions. And the reason why I, I bring that to your attention is because there's even an app that goes with the book that says, right, we have this many people, we've got this much money, and we want to do a short-term project. And you put the sliders all together, and it comes up with a whole bunch of suggestions for what you could do to bring dignity in our land. So there's even an app. <laughs> and the why. The why is the most personal and most important. And I'll tell you why. Because, ladies, what if education in this country worked? What if it was accessed by everybody in our nation on the same level? And what if, by the time a young person got to university-going age, they actually had been educated all to the same level, and so that by the time they went to university, they all had the same kind of basis on which to take their tertiary education? What if? What if, in South Africa, when people go to a hospital, it didn't matter that they couldn't afford private health care because public health care was so good that they didn't have to wait in long lines and take a day off work just to get their medication, which they might not get at, that, at the end of that day. And so instead of going back the next day, they just don't take their medication. And so therefore, they end up sicker than they were in the first place. What if health care in South Africa worked? What if there were more godly people in politics? I can't tell you how many people have come to my husband to tell him, you know, you shouldn't be doing politics. You're a man of God. And then I think, sure. You know, somebody should have told that to Daniel. You know, somebody should have told that to King David. 
You know, somebody should have told Joseph to stay out of Pharaoh's courts. He shouldn't have been a deliverer to his people. You know, somebody should have told Moses that it wasn't his place to stand up against Pharaoh. You know, uh, somebody should have spoken to Esther and told her that good queens stay in their bedrooms. Somebody should have spoken to Deborah and told her who was she to judge her nation. When I read my Bible, there's plenty of godly people in government. Because God positioned them there. What is it for you? Why? Why? Because our country has to work, ladies. Our country has to work. Because when it works, I'm telling you, it is going to be a beacon of light in this world. Our country has got resources in agriculture that could feed nations, not just ours, but nations throughout Africa. Our country has got mineral resources that could provide wealth for all sorts of sectors within our land. Our country has got intelligent people doing amazing, amazing things. I could introduce you to a young man called Reuben, who is at the church that we used to attend in Johannesburg, who through a movement called Feet for, Feet for Fees, walked from Johannesburg to Port Elizabeth to raise, to raise 8 million rand for students so that they could go to university. That's one young man, never done it in his life before, 22 years old. You could be introduced to a young woman, Tabi Singh. She spoke at the GLS Summit a little while back, who has come up with an incredible plan for the most amazing facilities, clinics to be opened up throughout Karting, where you don't wait for more than 20 minutes to see somebody, and you will never pay more than 200 rand for your consultation and your medication. A public system. South Africans have the answers to our own problems. And can I tell you what? The house of God has those solutions. So I'm going to end off now, but I, I'm going to make a Nehemiah call to you ladies. And I want to say to you, don't feel pressured into participating. Because as you can see, this call comes with a lot of opposition. This call comes with a lot of hard work. This call is going to require you to take up tools and weapons to defend our land and to build it and to restore dignity to the people of this nation. And it's not for sissies. And that's why I feel it's incredible that the first time I bring this message is to a group of women. Because you are the bedrock of society. You are the spine of your communities. Whether you are mothers or not is irrelevant in this regard because women are in their families, in their communities, what is the, the pinnacle and the foundation all at the same time of that community. And there's a reason why God wanted women to hear this message. We have so much influence in our little sphere that when one of you gets thrown into a pond, the ripples 
just keep going and going and going. There's a reason why God wanted women to hear the Nehemiah call. So as I, I'm going to ask you in a moment to stand and pray with me. I'm going to call us to a, a repentance prayer, but I'm also going to call us to a prayer of declaration over our land. So I don't want you to stand if you don't feel the stirring in your heart today. And nobody will look at you and judge you for that. But if you feel a stirring in your heart, if you feel that pain that Nehemiah felt, if you're feeling a desperation that is actually starting to trickle into everything you do, I want to ask you then to stand with me. Ladies, we are going to change the atmosphere today. I don't want you to send another fearful forward on WhatsApp after today. We are not slaves to fear. We are children of God. We are going to fight for the king. We are going to stand up as women who can see the why. We have to restore dignity to this country so that it works. Because there is so much in South Africa, and we have so much to give, that it has to work. Our wall around our nation has to be repaired. And I want to ask you, if you feel you can respond to that call of Nehemiah, I'm going to lead us in a prayer, and I'm going to ask you to stand. Lord God, we come before you as women in our communities, Father God. We are the women in our families. We are the women in this church. We are the women of this nation, Lord Jesus. We ask, Father God, for the protection of the blood of Jesus over every woman, every household represented by this prayer, Lord God. Lord Jesus, we realize that we will come against opposition as we take this take up the call of Nehemiah to our nation. And we ask that you, we do so under your protection, Lord God. Lord Jesus, we come to answer the call to build and defend and bring dignity back to our nation. As women of this nation, the backbone of our communities, we say, yes, Lord. Lord, our hearts break for what we see in our nation. We come to repent for all the injustice and unrighteousness that we and the generations that we represent have been guilty of. Forgive us and the generations that we come from for our, for our eyes and our hearts that only looked out for dishonest gain, for shedding innocent blood, for practicing oppression, for violence, we ask that you save us and forgive us and all those living in the borders of South Africa who have been guilty of the same. And we repent on their behalf as well. Please, set them free and weave us together as one nation under your godly principles, Lord Jesus. 
We also repent that we come from generations of South Africans who have forsaken their covenant with the Lord their God and worshipped other gods and served them. We deeply repent for this. We ask for the blood of the Lamb to cover our sins and the sins of those who live with us in South Africa. We forgive them for their idolatry, even as you have forgiven us for ours. And we choose to return to our covenant with you, to return to our why. Please give us willing and obedient hearts and a contrite spirit so that we may follow you and please you, Lord Jesus. We break every idolatrous covenant that we've had with the enemy. We give back anything that we received from him and we choose to humbly return to our covenant with you. And we thank you that you remain faithful even when we are not. And for that we praise your name, Lord Jesus. Lord God, the word says in Revelations 10 verse 11 that we must prophesy a new nation, Lord God. And so, Lord God, we stand together and we prophesy that South Africa will be a land where widows, orphans and the poor will find safety and provision. Lord God, we say South Africa will be a place of safety for the stranger and the foreigner and that they will contribute to our wealth. Lord Jesus, that we will be a light to the nations and a land of resources to our own people and that we will have excess and provision and fair trade for the people of many lands, even up into Africa and over the globe, Lord God. Lord, according to Isaiah 2 verse 4, we prophesy that you bring South Africa into a spirit of wisdom, that we will see justice done through us that you will be the judge between the nations and you will decide disputes for many people. We declare, Lord, that our weapons will be beaten to plowsheds, Lord God, that South Africa will have racial harmony, that weapons will be laid down in exchange for peace and prosperity that comes from brotherly unity, Lord God, that South Africa will be a place of God's unconditional love in action that South Africa will be a place of righteous leadership of generosity and of integrity Jesus we declare this afternoon that we see the walls repaired we see a city functioning we see a nation unified we see a nation with a strong identity. We see a nation where education and health and the political system and the economy and the media and every sector, Father God, are in harmony with your word. That they prosper and their people prosper. That, Lord, we see a nation where leaders will come and ask us, how do you maintain peace? How do you lift your economy from junk status? How did you get to the point where you can accept foreigners without worry because you have no lack? Thank you, Lord, that we will be a nation. We see a nation of justice of leaders who follow after your heart, of morality, according to your word, Lord Jesus. 
we see a nation whose dignity has been restored. And we declare it right now over South Africa. Right now, Lord God, we declare it over our land. We declare it. Just lift your voice. Just lift your voice. as we come before you as individual women, Lord. We seek your face for our what, for our how, for our why. We seek your face for our where. And we ask, Lord Jesus, that we will no longer behave as the the oppressors of our land, Lord but that you will change our hearts, that you will change our minds, that we will burn with a desire to see dignity restored to our land, Lord God. That, Lord Jesus, we will see people. We will see them in their struggle and their pain, and we will be moved to action, Lord God. Use us, Lord God. Use us to bring restoration in our land. In Jesus' name, in Jesus' name.